0: Uh, so with all those things in mind, I want to introduce somebody to you who's going to um, preach for us today. Uh, first of all, welcome back Tom Hendricks, our fearless leader's back. Um, but what I love about this is Tom isn't scheduled to preach till next week. He just wanted to come to church. So it's great to have you. It's good to see you again. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, Mark Lautenschlager, many of you uh, have, here's the deal. We have a website because of Mark Lautenschlager. We have an app because of Mark Lautenschlager. We have personal worship because of Mark Lautenschlager uh, and a million other things. Uh, and he did all of that as long as he could as a volunteer. Uh, and finally, it was just too overwhelming. He ended up coming on staff with us. And uh, he's also an elder of this church. And he's going to come in and speak to us today. And I want you to know, uh, this is a man uh, who has not been to seminary. He's not any of those things. He has made the scriptures and the doctrines of God his life mission to learn. And, uh, and he has powerful gifts to communicate them. So let's welcome Mark up here.
1: You know, Matt asked me earlier how many years I'd been around here, and I said 34. And I started thinking about that, and it was uh, its kind of an odd thing to think about the fact that I have been on this earth and a member of this church longer than I've been on this earth and not a member of this church. <laughs> that uh, when my wife and I came to church here for the first time, some guy named Reagan was starting his second term in the White House. Some of you have heard of him. And done a lot of different things around here as a volunteer over the years. I've rocked babies and changed diapers in the nursery, put out bagels, and I've done just about everything. And the one thing that I would always say to people, they, they would say, you've done everything around here. And I'd say, they never let me preach. Welp. <clears throat> so much for that. And I'm going to indulge myself for just one more moment, and I'm going to say hi to my mom and dad. Hi, mom. Hi, dad. Love you both. They let your boy preach. What were they thinking? So they're watching on stream. So last week, Matt kicked off our series, Upside Down Kingdom." where he's talking about the the Beatitudes. This is based on the Sermon on the Mount. And he introduced our big idea, our through line, as we call it, for the series. That is to have an encounter with Jesus and let him challenge your kingdom. Well, today, our encounter with Jesus and our challenge is about being salt and light to the world. Now, Jesus uses these metaphors to tell us something. He's telling us what he wants us to do In his kingdom. They're job descriptions, right? Job descriptions. Let's look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 13. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now, before we get rolling, let's ask ourselves a question. Let's ask ourselves how do we understand the phrase salt of the earth? If I pointed out somebody in the audience today, pointed over here, and I said, this guy over here, he's a real salt-of-the-earth kind of guy. I've immediately communicated something to you, haven't I? There's context here. You know what I mean by that. You're going to say, he's a simple man. He's satisfied with, with what he has. He probably has a manicured lawn, trimmed hedges. He's got power tools. And he lends them, right? Comfortable in denim And a baseball cap. He loves mom, America, and apple pie. He's a real salt of the earth kind of guy. Now, none of those are bad things, okay? If if that's if that's you, if I've just described you, just text your boy when the property next door goes up for sale, and I'll just move in because you're a great neighbor. That's it's all good stuff. But it's not what Jesus meant when he talked about being salt of the earth. See, it's not a character award for us. It's a job description. That's a favorite trick, I think, of our adversary. He likes to do that. He likes to take bits of Bible wisdom, like you're the salt of the earth, and put them into our modern vernacular, make them part of our figures of speech, and then just twist them, nudge them, until they mean something different. He's not going to flip it 180 degrees because we'd see that one coming. Subtle. Dr. Warren Gage is one of our teaching elders here. And he's fond of reminding me, and I do a terrible Warren Gage impersonation, so I'm not going to try, don't worry. He's fond of reminding me, Mark, you've got to remember, we are supernaturalists. And he's right. By definition, we believe in a reality that is beyond our physical world. We believe in a spiritual dimension, one that we can't yet taste, see, hear, feel. Right? It's beyond our senses. And we like the idea that that spiritual realm gives us an advocate. We are happy to sing those songs. God is with us. He's on our side. He'll never leave us. He's fighting for us. And those are great songs. And we should be happy to sing them because that's a great truth. But it also means that we have an adversary. There really is a devil out there that's opposing us. And he likes to do these things with Bible wisdom. So don't be surprised when these meanings change. Now, right up front, I'm going to tell you something about salt and light. I'm going to tell you that salt and light are powered by the gospel. You cannot succeed at being either salt or light apart from the gospel. We have to begin, I think, by understanding how first century listeners would have regarded salt, the people that heard Jesus say that. We think about it as seasoning, you know, table salt, N-A-C-L, sodium chloride. I am that kind of nerd. Um, But salt, only like really wealthy people seasoned with salt back then because it was way too valuable as a preservative. It was used as a currency in some cultures. You know, have you heard the phrase, he's worth his salt? Yeah, if you're old enough. Young people are like, what's he talking about? He's worth his salt. How about the word salary? The root of that is is paid in salt, salt salary. Now, I want you to know, I didn't want to step up here unprepared, so I checked both Google and Wikipedia on this. In the first century, and this is difficult to believe, but in the first century, there was no known means of refrigeration. I know. Or air conditioning. I don't even know how they survived back then. I would have been texting someone to complain is what I'm saying about that. But they had something else. They called it dry curing. I've got a picture of it here. Dry curing. And it's still practiced today. People that practice woodcraft, you know, woodsmanship, they go out and live off the land for a while. They'll do this to preserve the things that they catch. Um, some people do it because they like the flavor of salted meat. But the idea is that you pack the fish or meat in salt to prevent spoiling. The salt prevented, or at least greatly slowed down, the corruption. Well, that raises a question. What causes corruption? If we're talking about our world, what causes corruption in our world? It comes from inside us. It comes from that that dark place we have, those impulses and lusts and desires. It comes from sin. It comes from our flesh nature. It's baked into our DNA. That's a big debate in our enlightened society, modern thinkers. Do we really have a sin nature? Is it nature or is it nurture? Why not both? I think we're born with it. The Bible says we are. Right? We just get better at it as time goes by. You don't have to teach a child how to be greedy or selfish, or teach a preschooler how to take their classmates' possessions. You've got to teach them not to do that. It's something that comes natural. But people still object to it vehemently. And I think it's because they don't want to be lumped in the box with guys like Hitler or Stalin. That's sin. Oh sure, sin blows up big sometimes, and you get your genocidal dictators. Or some guy that shoots up a Walmart. I'm not lumping everybody in that box. I'm not saying that everybody who is a, that we're all like them. Some of us are sinners with a lowercase s. Some of us are sinners with an uppercase s. Some of us are sinners in all caps with three fire emojis. You know who you are. <laughs> might be me. <laughs> but if you say that you've never been greedy or selfish or you've never made an idol out of some habit or practice, then I'm going to need to see your medical marijuana card is what I'm saying because I think the dosage might need to be adjusted just a little bit. None of us are perfect. Period. Period. We all have a natural capacity for sin. And that, that is where the corruption in this world comes from. Jesus says we're salt. Salt prevents corruption. Sin causes corruption. So, how does the gospel prevent sin? Before we go there, I have a word for you on how we're to regard those who are outside the church who are outside the family of God. They're not followers of Christ. They're not believers. They're just people living their lives. Let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, beginning in verse 9. Paul writes, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would, what? Need to go out of the world Paul was writing to that church about the people inside the church who were saying yeah I'm just I'm one of you I'm on board I'm a follower of Jesus I'm a believer I'm a Christian I'm one of you and yet their lives were marked by these things sexual immorality greed and idolatry and he's warning the church you've got to put people like that outside the church for your own good But what was he saying in a sort of an oh, by the way, about those who are outside? Let's look at verse 12. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. I'm just gonna say this. It's as much me as it is you. It's all of us. But let's be honest. Church can get a little judgy toward the world, right? We can start looking at them, looking at how we live, looking at how they live, thinking we know the answers, and what they need to do is start living like us, even though they don't understand why, because we're doing things the right way, and we get a little judgy. And when that doesn't turn out well, what happens? We want to withdraw. We want to live in our Christian bubble, come to church on Sunday, go to our small group, hang around with our Christian friends. Don't interact with anybody out there. Those aren't good people. But you can't be salt preserving anything unless you are in and around that which you wish to preserve. If I put the salt on a pile over here and the meat on a pile over there, not preserving anything. Give you these three thoughts. When it comes to people who are outside, people of the world, people who are not fellow believers in Christ, it's not our job to fix them. It's not even our job to convince them that they are wrong. It is our job to introduce them to Jesus. In John chapter 16, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he's saying that after his ascension, he After he rose from the dead, he was with them for 40 days, and then he ascended back into heaven. And he's saying, after my ascension, I'm going to send the helper. That's the Holy Spirit to you. And he, the Holy Spirit, convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. That process of understanding the truth about ourselves is a supernatural process. None of us have ever argued somebody into the kingdom of God ever. So now, about the gospel and sin. Let's talk about Romans chapter 7. Now, that's a fun and confusing chapter. If you've, if you've not read Romans 7 before, you're kind of new to this Bible reading thing, not been going to church all that long. Before you decide to read Romans 7, you know, hit your boy up and we'll go have some coffee or something. i have to explain this to you because that's a kind of a crazy chapter. Paul is describing this amazing struggle that's going on. He's talking about someone whose mind knows God's law, but in his flesh he has the law of sin and death. And the struggle that's between the two of these things, and he says God's law made it worse because he wouldn't even know what it meant to covet had the law not told him, don't covet. Now it's all he can think about. He doesn't do the things he wants to do. He does the things he doesn't want to do. There's this struggle going on between The law of God in his mind and the law of sin and death in his flesh. The law had conveniently given him a big list of things not to do. To do. I think realistically that somebody who is an unbeliever, who's outside of the faith, is going to exist in one of two states. Either they're going to tell you that they're not sinners. Because sin is like just the really bad stuff. The Hitler and Stalin, genocidal dictator kind of thing. They're just here for the party. And usually, the, it breaks down on this, along this line, they'll tell you, I'm not hurting anybody. What I'm doing is not hurting anybody. How is that sin? That's not the definition of sin. The definition of sin is we fall short of God's glory. We fall short of God's perfection. We're all there. Even those lowercase s people were there. Or they are aware of that. They feel the weight of their sin because the Holy Spirit's doing that thing, that spiritual thing that's going to convict them and bring them in. And they are miserable fighting it on their own. Paul closes out the chapter that way by saying that this person, such a person, is a wretched man, miserable man. And he asks the question, who's going to deliver me from this body of death? And he answers the question, I thank God through my Lord Jesus Christ. Now, free seminary lesson here. <clears throat> For those of us that didn't go to seminary. The Bible didn't come with chapter and verse. Didn't, they, were, they weren't in there. They were added later, like, like a lot later, by people that needed to be able to find the same place so we could read the same verses together or go back and find the same place again. So it's not like this was a cliffhanger. Paul didn't get to the end of chapter 7 and go, who will deliver me? Dun, dun, dun! Tune in next season and see who delivers Paul. We're sorry the series has been canceled. You won't know. It's not, it's not Netflix. Not that i pick on Netflix for canceling stuff. I wanted to see what happened. Okay. It just flowed from Romans 7 right into Romans 8. And so shall we. Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. Jesus took the death that we deserved, and he rose after three days to put death to death. What he did satisfied the judgment for sin. See, the deal is, if you sin, you die. Even with the little S. That's what happens. That's the deal. You sin, you die. But he died, so we don't have to. His coming back to life assures us that we will have life after death also. Now, verse 2 says, set free from the law of sin and death. Now, we didn't read chapter 7, but that's what Paul called it there. Those are the very words. So that's what it's talking about here. You know, the Bible says that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We hear God's word when the gospel is proclaimed. We believe the gospel. That is, we believe Jesus died so that we don't have to. Satisfied the judgment for sin and lives again, so we will also. We believe that and we don't rely on all the good things we do. And that's how we are found in Christ. God then sends his spirit to seal the deal, and and that spirit frees us from the law of sin and death. Now, how does that work? Are we free now? (laughs) Sin no more? No. That'd be nice and very easy, but no. Let's look in verse 5, Romans chapter 8, 5. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. Now, this unfortunate wording here in the ESV kind of gives you the impression that set is the active term here, that we set our minds on something. I've set my mind on that and that note. Set isn't the action. It's not saying I set my playlist in Spotify before I took that long drive. Set is the result. The action is live according to. You have your mind set by living according to. It's a process. It's not an overnight thing. It's not flipping a light switch here. We don't suddenly get rid of sin. But there's a process by living according to the Spirit. That process involves something that we, we call it dying to ourselves every day. Now, that's not something that, that's a, a, a biblical concept. We went through that in many sermons up here, but the one that comes to mind most is a sermon that Matt preached back in the series called The Rhythm of Grace. The rhythm of Grace was really a foundational sermon series um, in our church history. It laid out the rhythm of grace, this system by which we remember God and we're honest about ourselves and we receive his grace, rest in his wisdom Rest in his grace, receive his wisdom. Sorry, I blew it. Sorry, Mom. Uh, and then we do what he says. But that way of processing both the word of God and also making decisions. It was, it's a foundational series of messages. And in message 18, 1-8, you can write that down or ask me later. In message 18, in our sermon library on the app or the website, this goes all the way back to 2015, Matt preached a sermon that the whole thing on the sermon was dying to ourselves every day. I would recommend that you, that, you look, that you go listen to it. Now, that was before we had the video camera, so it's just audio, I apologize. Now, I had to look for it too. I didn't find it, by the way, just by memory. It's, I don't remember everything quite that long. Uh, so I went to the website and I went to the top menu and it's got the little Sherlock Holmes, like, you know, magnifying glass on the right-hand side. I clicked that for the search box and I put in die to ourselves, which is a horrible idea because then I got everything that had the word die to or ourselves in it and that was a lot of things. So then being a Google expert, I put them in quotes, and that's, then I found message 18. So Rhythm of Grace, message 18, die to ourselves. So let's review. Jesus says we're salt, so we're here to preserve against the corruption that's eating away at the world. Sin causes that corruption. We don't prevent sin by judging it. We prevent sin by bringing the gospel to those who need it so they can be found in Christ also. And have his spirit in them also. And then also have a way out from the law of sin and death. The other half of verse 13 was, If salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. If salt was impure back then, they got it by drying seawater or salt water, or by digging it up. And they did the best they could to get the impurities out, but they never had pure table salt like we do. We know salt lasts forever. You know, if I I move into the house and there's a thing of Morton's salt in the cabinet 30 years later, it's still fine, you know, because salt is always good. But it was possible back in that time that the salt portion could be used up and there would still be minerals left. There would still be something there. They would usually then just take that and... Use it as a type of gravel. They toss it out on the road to keep the weeds from growing up. The church can do great things. We can feed the hungry. We can shelter the homeless. We can save unborn babies. But if those things don't come with the gospel, then Jesus is saying that the efforts are ultimately worthless. Matthew five fourteen. you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Now, if you've been going to Pastor Sam's Wednesday night classes, you already know the answer to this, but in the Bible, darkness represents what? Death. So then if darkness is death, light would be life. Points to people that have been going to Sam's class, they would know that. Jesus said in John chapter 8, verse 12, He said, I am the light of the world. He that follows after me will not walk in darkness, but the light of life will be in him. Now, we are the light of the world, but it's not our light, it's His light. We carry the light of the world, the light of life in us. He's the light. I have a picture of a lighthouse that this is the light assembly at the top of a lighthouse. And you see all that fancy glass stuff around the bulb. That glass is designed to take the light from the bulb and to amplify it and scatter it in every direction possible to make it visible from as far away as possible. That's our role. We're not the light bulb. We carry the light. Now, He also says that a city city set on a hill can't be hidden. There were lots of reasons to build cities on hills back then. Defense comes to mind. If you've got the high ground, your enemy has to come with all that heavy armor and stuff, and they're dragging it up the hill. Meanwhile, you're shooting arrows at them and dumping oil on them. It's probably going to go your way. So defense was one of them. But also, they were a beacon. They built them up high on the hill so they could be seen. At night, when the torches are lit up on the wall, you could see it for miles. The travel at night back then was dangerous. Bandits of both the two- and four-legged variety liked to hunt at night. If you were traveling at night and you had a caravan, you would stop and make a bright fire, put your strongest people around the outside edge, and then continue on in the morning. But sometimes... You're by yourself. You're caught outside at night. It's taking you longer to get to the city than you thought. You've got your torch or maybe an oil lamp. You're lucky to see six feet in front of you. You're lucky if you don't step in a hole and break your ankle. But you can see that city. You can see that city up on a hill, and you can see in what direction you have to go and about how far it is to get there. It's calling to you from miles away, and it's telling you that here, you're going to be able to find light and warmth and food and safety. The elements of life, that's us. We're the beacon. The travelers, the people out in the world, the travelers that are on a journey... There's people that out there that have questions. Things have happened. Sometimes the hardest things you can imagine. Where do they turn? Where do they go? They're going to look around. They're going to look at us. They're going to think, I always thought those people were weird. I still think they're weird. But they believe what they say. And they don't judge me. And that's what Alpha's for. When people show up with the questions, or when we run into people that have those questions, invite them to Alpha. That's the purpose of Alpha, to allow people that are in that situation, who have those questions, to come in and, and just talk about them and start the path of looking for answers. So, what about a lampstand? Well, in the lampstand, they put the light up high so that the light could dispel as much darkness as possible within the house darkness, death. See, the beacon on the hill attracts them. You've got the torches up high, they can see you, and they're coming from a distance. But when they walk inside, when they get here, if the light isn't lifted up, if Jesus isn't lifted up, if he's not high and lifted up here, right, the attraction was wasted. It's great that we've got Whatever we offer, whatever programs, bagels, coffee, hello, hi, how are you? whatever, doesn't matter. If the light isn't lifted up, if this place isn't flooded with the light that is Christ, then it's wasted. We have to be light on the outside, and we also have to be light on the inside. You see the gospel connection there? Salt is kind of a one on one thing. It preserves what it touches has to be in and around the things it's preserving. That's you out there living like people do in the world with other people. And you're bringing the gospel to those who need to hear it. Light is a one-to-many thing. It shines to the world. It shines to those who come in the house. It's an attractant, but it's the same gospel. It's Jesus following Jesus. Verse 16, last one. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Being a Christian, being found in Christ, saved, family of God, whatever you want to call it, being a Christ follower, that comes by... Grace, through faith. And faith alone doesn't depend on what we do to earn it. But God does expect that we will live in a way that shows our faith to those who are watching. And that's what good works are. Good works is one of those Bible terms. Good works? Does that mean that I remember to do all my chores? Did you do good works? I emptied the cat litter. I took the thing to the. Yes, I did my good work. It. It means living in a way that shows your faith to those who are watching. If you did your personal worship this week, and I hope that you did because I spent a lot of time on it, um, day five, you ran into this with passages from Ephesians, from Romans, and James. God's plan has always been that the relationship begins with faith, with believing the gospel, but God has always planned We would do those good works too. And if we do them right, the attention will be on Him, not on us. That's the gospel connection to salt and light. That's the challenge. Let Jesus challenge you, challenge your kingdom today. It's we're salt, we're light, and we need the gospel. It's no secret to anybody on staff here or anybody from my small group, some of the people who were here this morning, that I'm a fanboy of the Apostle Paul and of the book of Romans. <clears throat> Just saying. But because we can't have enough Paul and enough Romans in our life, I want to close with these two verses because this is what's really important to remember when we, when we think about the power of the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 16, Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greeks. That's us. For in it, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Pastor Matt's going to come and lead us in a time of prayer and reflection.